back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutionalism. I'm Adam White. In the last few months, we've had a lot of conversations about presidency, presidential power, and the broader constitutional system the president's place in it. We had a couple of conversations around the inauguration, including one with AEI's Gary Schmidt and Jeffrey Tullis. We're lucky to be joined this week by Gary once again to discuss a report that he recently co-authored here at AEI. His co-author, our other guest today, is Joe Bassett. The title of the report is Crafting a Republican Executive, the Presidency and the Constitutional Convention. And you can get this report on our website. We'll link it in the show notes. Now, Gary obviously needs no introduction, or in any case, he's not getting one. But let's for those who aren't already familiar with Joe Bassett's work, Joe is the Alice Tweed Tui Professor of Government and Ethics at Claremont McKenna College. He and Gary have been collaborators in their work on the presidency for quite some time now, and we'll circle back to that at the end of the conversation. And among the books that Joe has edited over the years on the subject include The Presidency and the Constitutional Order, The Constitutional Presidency, and a collection of writings by Herb Storing titled Toward a More Perfect Union. Joe, welcome. Yeah, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. And Gary, welcome back. Thanks. It's important that you actually invited me back after these poor performances before. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I'll get it right eventually. Let's just start with the title of the report. You say, Crafting a Republican Executive. Gary, what is a Republican executive? Well, one of the most interesting things about the Constitutional Convention is the fact that they were attempting to create an executive, an effective executive, but do so in this extended republic. It was an unprecedented effort, and and it was by no means clear how they were going to be able to accomplish it. There's a great quote from James Wilson at the very beginning of the convention where he remarks that this issue is going to be bounded by two principal concerns. The country's extent required the vigor of a monarchy, but its manners were purely Republican. I think what Joe and I were trying to do is, in the broadest sense, was recover the deliberation about how, how to do this through the Constitutional Convention. Joe, could you maybe unpack that a little bit more? I love this quote, too, from Rufus, Rufus King. The extent of the country requires the vigor of a monarchy. The manners of the people of the U.S., they're against the kingly executive. Our manners are purely Republican. And I, I sort of mixed and matched with the quote there. Could you unpack that a little bit, Joe? Especially, let's start with the latter part. The manners of the people of the United States requiring a purely Republican executive? Well, it's certainly the case. You know, there's a phrase that comes up in the Federalist Papers and elsewhere that the Americans have a genius for Republican government. And I always take that to mean an affinity toward and a, and a particular ability to achieve Republican government. So there was no serious consideration of having a king, you know, a real king as the head of the new, the new American, American government. So whatever they came up with had to be purely Republican. Now, Wilson is an especially interesting figure, and maybe we can get into him a little bit more as we go along, because he wanted the president from the very beginning. He proposed a popularly elected president for a three-year term with indefinite re-eligibility. That's, that's in like the first or second day that they address the presidency. He's proposing something that seems so different from what the others were inclined toward until the end we get back to something like what he actually proposed on that first day. So whatever they came up with, I mean, after all, what they were doing was proposing something, right? They weren't creating it. They were proposing something. And so the manners of the people, as we indicate here, and as some of these delegates indicated, were purely Republican. The people are not going to accept an aristocracy, a real aristocracy. They're not going to accept a monarchy. Nonetheless, monarchs, typically were effective administrators and effective executives. So I think Wilson's point is that there's something about monarchy, meaning one person, that's what monarch means, right? One person ruling, one person holding the executive power makes for a more effective executive than a committee or a monarch that would be severely limited, or one person severely limited by a council, for example. We have a in the fuller book that we're doing, we have a couple of chapters on the state governors. This report we put out from AEI, when it ends up in the complete book, will occur after a couple of chapters on the state governors. So it's, there's obviously, this is not going to be an easy matter <laughs> to create an executive that has the strength of a monarchy, 
but has the safety of a Republican office office holder. And if I could just add related to that, so this is a related, so that's a tension that's built into the, the process that they're undergoing, right? It's, it's a, that they have to deal with from the very beginning. And Wilson, to his credit, lays it right out, lays it right out. Here's the issue, right, to his credit. The related tension, which is maybe not exactly the same tension, but it's related, is they're creating a constitutional office, which is also in some respects a popular office. I mean, it's popularly elected through this funny counting mechanism of the Electoral College, but they thought of the Electoral College as a species of popular election. This is made very clear in Federal 68 by Hamilton in his, in his writings just uh, you know, a few months later. So it's a constitutional office, which means it's got duties and responsibilities day to day that are determined by the words of the Constitution, but it's also a popular office. And there's a built-in tension between those two notions as well. And even in contemporary scholarship, I was in a little bit of a debate recently with a scholar who sees the, the original presidency as almost purely constitutional and not at all popular. And then we have someone like Donald Trump, who seems to be entirely a populist and maybe even a demagogue, and there's that, that whole debate. But even you can see in the words of Wilson and then his colleague, Gouverneur Morris, are adamant proponents of a popular presidency. Not everybody is as attracted to the notion of a popular presidency at the convention, but that's one of the tensions that works itself out. Adam, let me just jump in. So the other element I think that we bring to the analysis is when Wilson talks about vigor, one of the things that we unpack is vigor. A lot of the studies of the Constitutional Convention go straight to looking at you know, analysis of the powers and the authorities of the presidency. And one of the, I think one of the strengths of our analysis is not to ignore those debates, but also to look at the institutional arrangements that bring those powers into most effective use. So it's a combination. Vigor really means the kinds of institutional and authorities that sort of combine to, to bring the kind of energy that they, they thought they needed for this new republic. And on the tension between all these considerations, Joe, you started by pointing out the the, the framers' references to the genius of Republican government. I have to admit, I was thinking of that. I was immediately struck by that same comparison, just seeing the title Republican Executive, which is why I'm so fixated on it. The one that's ringing in mind for me, frankly, was in Federalist 37, where Madison talks about the genius of Republican liberty. And there, the sort of the, the, the paradox or the tension is even clearer, right? Li- Republican, meaning somewhat democratic, and liberty meaning even further away from from democracy. And the line that you quote from Wilson, focusing on our Republican manners, but also the breadth of of this new nation, the size of this new nation and the need for a vigorous monarch, the tension is very clear, right? A president who's so powerful that he can preside, he can execute his office for a, a growing continental nation, but at the same time, not an office that's so big that it becomes detached from the people. Right. And obviously, a presidential office that can be so powerful as to be dangerous. Yeah. So if you think about, you know, the special, and we talked a little bit about this in the chapter, I think about the spe- only the president gets this special oath to faithfully execute the office and to preserve it and protect and defend the Constitution. And, every, and in the Constitution, everybody else has to take an oath to support the Constitution. So I would remind my students that I think four times in my life I've taken the congressionally prescribed oath to support the Constitution. So there's, you know, Congress writes the words of the oath. The Constitution writes the words of the framers of the presidential oath. I worked for the post office a couple of summers, had to take this oath. I worked for the state's attorney's office in Chicago, had to take the oath. I worked for the Department of Justice, had to take the oath. But none of them were the presidential oath. You take an oath to support the Constitution, but the presidential oath is an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. So why... Obviously, the phrase preserve, protect, and defend, and Lincoln's the first president to really recur to this oath as a grounding for authority. Even Andrew Jackson didn't when he strongly put down this incipient rebellion in South Carolina over the tariffs in the early 1830s. So what's the significance of the, of the difference in those two oaths? Well, I think that and this is something that we learned in the, our professor's classroom years ago with Herbert J. Storing, who we may talk about later. So preserve, protect, and defend. So the president is so strong, he has to be emphatically bound down to the constitutional order. On the other hand, he's the one who is 
strongest and most able to preserve and protect and defend the constitutional order from its enemies. So that oath reflects both the danger of the presidency, you were to bind them down through an oath, but also the opportunity of the president and the ability of the president more than any other institution to protect the nation during a great crisis like the Civil War. Those are the tensions that are built in. Yeah, I think I think the fact that the oath enters into I mean, that Madison puts forward this new oath after the, the report of the Committee of Detail, where all of a sudden the president has a whole list of new authorities, powers and duties. It was probably appropriate because at that point they could see that this office was going to be much more substantial than anything they that, the, for example, the governors of the states were capable of governing. So it's appropriate that the oath comes up at a point in the convention where the, the deliberations about presidency, really this, this effort to combine the Republican and the effective executive has started as the outline has become pretty clear. We've alluded a few times to the fact that this office has particular powers and it's a very powerful power, so to speak. Before we delve into that, let's just remind the listeners that the, the framers weren't writing on a blank slate. They weren't just discussing these theories in the abstract. The, the task of creating this office and creating this constitution at the time was in the aftermath of the Articles of Confederation, of course, or during, I guess, during the Articles of Confederation, but in the amidst their failure, and also in the aftermath of maladministration under King George giving rise to the, the revolution. Could either of you maybe speak to the problems that the creation of this office was, in, was intended to solve, and then maybe we'll get to the powers? Yeah, I think Joe and I would sort of point to probably the, you know, the, the analysis that Charles Thatch did back in the early 1900s as a great smaller book that analyzes the logic behind why the convention took the form it did. And generally speaking, what you're talking about is you had governors in the states who were formerly fairly weak, and by and large, with the exception of New York and, and Massachusetts, the state legislatures were able to dominate the, the politics of the states in such a way as that the governance of the states were inst- unstable, that you had laws that would change constantly, property rights and, and the rest. So there was a political need for a stronger executive to balance out the constitution against the legislature from the experience of the states. And then when you're talking about the, at the national level, the Articles of Confederation, of course, didn't have separate institutions. The U.S. Congress was both the legislative body, but also an executive body. In some respects, it was more important as an executive body. And the history of the Articles of Confederation, when when going when handling executive matters, was a poor one, and they never quite got it right. And so, by the time 1787 rolls around, folks have learned the lessons of what an ineffective system would be for governing if you didn't have an independent and a fairly strong executive, both for internal governance, but also for handling executive affairs altogether. Yeah. And, and it, as, as I think that points out a little bit, and actually our common professor did even more so, that also is also a tension built into that history. So the national executive, which they stumbled upon, first they had under the Articles of Confederation, there was no independent executive. So they had congressional committees undertake executive functions. Then they created these boards that would have committee members and outsiders. Then they created real departments headed by a single person. All of these were responsible to the to Congress, which is both the legislative and executive body. But what the lesson there was, we need a better an independent executive to better serve the will of Congress, to better carry out the legislation of Congress. But the lesson in the states was somewhat different, as Gary just pointed out. We need a stronger independent executive to stand up against legislatures that are getting out of control, legislatures that are violating their own constitutional duties and responsibilities. So that tension is built into the American regime and the American executive. Sometimes you measure how good the president is by how effectively he carries out the laws passed by Congress, domestic laws passed by Congress. But sometimes you measure how good the president is by whether he's willing to stand up against bad ideas coming out of Congress. And so that tension is just intrinsic to the American regime, the American structure of government. So I suppose when the president is stand, you need a president to stand up to Congress in those moments on behalf of the people. 
and you need a president who can execute the laws against the people when necessary on behalf of the Congress that wrote the laws. Yeah. I guess I'm thinking one example of the latter would be Shays' Rebellion, right? One of the failings of, of the early American government, the inability of, a, of either state or federal officials to, to, to quash the uprising in Massachusetts. Yeah, in 1785 and 1786, in Western Mass, there was this uprising of people, and the leader was this fellow Daniel Shays, who'd been a minor official officer in the Revolutionary War. Farmers were being dispossessed of their land because they couldn't pay their taxes. Courts were shutting, shutting down their farms and appropriating their farms. And so several thousand people from Western Massachusetts rose up against the established government. And the governor of Massachusetts had no independent means to put them down, didn't have a militia that was sufficiently able to put them down, and called on Congress for help. And Congress said, well, we don't have any way of helping you. So finally, wealthy Bostonians loaned the governor the money where he raised an equivalent or somewhat larger military force. And they went out to Western Mass and they put this down pretty quickly and the rebels scattered. And eventually they were all, they were all pardoned. But at times like that, you need a strong and effective executive merely to carry out the legitimate, in this case, the legitimate tax laws and property laws of the state of Massachusetts. And one of the, one of the things that Joe and I are working on right now is a chapter on the Washington administration. And one of the, the case, cases we're looking at is precisely the new executive's capacity to handle such a situation through the Whiskey Rebellion. So there's a really strong contrast about the institutional capacities of this new presidency, this new executive, when compared with what the Articles of Confederation were capable of doing. Now, all of that discussion is prelude to, to the, your report here, which walks through the Constitutional Convention of 1787 chronologically, thematically, explaining how all these pieces come together. And of course, there are many balls in the air, so to speak, throughout the, the convention. But it, is there one sort of center of gravity to the debate? I mean, was there one originating principle or one central principle that, that drove the debate about the creation of this office? Or was it just a bunch of things coming together? Well, they almost all agreed at the beginning. It had to be a single executive. Now, the great opponent of that view is Edmund Randolph, no insignificant person. He's the governor of the nation's most populous state and produced, what, four of the five first American presidents. He'd been governor for about six months, and he presents the Virginia plan at the convention, and he is adamantly opposed to a single executive, but he's, he's really a lonely voice in that. And within a couple of days, without much further debate after he has given a couple of long speeches attacking the notion of a single executive as the fetus of monarchy, that's his phrase. But then they simply agree by an overwhelming vote to have a single executive, and he never raises the issue again. And even at the end of the convention, he's one of the three delegates who were present who wouldn't sign the Constitution, and, he, and they each gave a little speech, or maybe a longer speech. Even then, he, in that speech, he doesn't revisit his problem with the single executive versus a, he wanted a committee of three which would be regionally based, one from the northern states, one from the middle states, one from the southern states. And that, that just had no traction. So a single executive, institutionally independent, but also, so separation of powers, but also independent will. And this is a distinction that's not often drawn, and we try to be very careful in drawing it. You can have an institutionally, you can have an institutionally independent executive who does not have an independent will or is not supposed to. And the classic illustration of that is the city council, city manager form of government that we're familiar with throughout the United States. So recently there was a city manager in this town outside of Minneapolis. After a police shooting, the city manager at a press conference said, well, we will give the police officers in this problematic, controversial police shooting, we'll make sure they have due process. And he was fired the next day for having said that. Now, he, he served merely at the pleasure of the city council. And the city manager was not supposed to have an independent will. He's supposed to be an effective manager who carries out the will of some other body, namely the city council, or in some cases, if you have an independently elected mayor, he may work directly under the mayor. That, was to, that notion was totally, it wasn't even really debated. I mean, it was totally rejected. Again, you have one dissenter, that notion of an executive that the American presidency should be that kind of executive, independent, but subservient to the will of Congress. 
And there it's Roger Sherman of Connecticut, who was a important person in the founding. He was one of the few signers of the Declaration, the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution. And again and again, he argues for a president who is merely the servant of the legislature. And no one comes to his aid. He's a lonely voice. So I would say those, those principles, they all agreed with at the beginning. One of the things I think the, we try to do in the essay, the report, is we try to show just how deliberative the convention was. And, and at the beginning, there's you know, just a couple of balls in the air. I mean, for example, you know, Joe just mentioned you know, they, they settled on the single executive they voted for, and it was never revisited. But what's interesting is that issue, that vote comes up at about the same time when, when they're also trying to define the executive powers. And so under the Virginia plan, there's two sets of executive powers. There's the powers to execute the law and appoint officials. And, but then the second one is something they call the executive rights that were vested in the Articles of Confederation. And so when they begin this process of trying to think this, this new institution through, those issues come up, you know, what is this new executive, what powers is he going to have? And all of a sudden, he's, they're also voting for the question about whether he's going to be a single officer or plural or have a, you know, a council, essentially. And it brings the convention to a halt because they haven't thought through how all these, well, these, these principles, these balls that are in the air are going to be you know, brought together. And so, you know, for the, at least initially, what happens is Wilson's basically says, let's put aside the issue of the powers for the time being, and let's get the matter of the, the single executive settled. And then as you, as you see the rest of the convention unfold, as the, the institution becomes stronger in its will, as Joe indicated, the issue of which powers can be responsibly put into that office start to be put back into the, the executive office, into the presidency in a way that at the beginning of the convention, they had no way of thinking through about how that was going to happen. So I think the, the general thrust of our essay is there are these principles they want to obtain with the office, but there's not clarity about how to go about it. And the convention itself is a, a really great example of serious deliberation about how you go about crafting this new institution. So there's, there's the basic nature of the office, one person versus multiple. There's questions about how that office would be selected. There's the powers of the office. And then, of course, all of that is in the shadow of debates about Congress and in the shadow of the debates about federal power overall. Joe, you're about to say something. Yeah, well, I, I just wanted to add to what Gary said, that the exercise of working through these debates is, is extremely informative because it is very much a genuine deliberative process, and you can see the power of arguments and the power of the developments. So that you end up with the president who looks a lot different than if they had to decide in the first week, you know, they had to write a constitution in a week, it would almost surely would have been a very different kind of presidency. But I also wanted to point out, though, that and Gary has made, I think, first made this point in earlier essays, part of what's going on here is parliamentary strategy. That is, the proponents of a strong presidency don't want to come out right away and lay it all out because they know that that's, you know, there's, there's an issue here. You've got to be a purely Republican, but as a very strong presidency, can it be purely Republican? So there's, I think, a little bit of intentional holding back in the first days of what they have in mind. And the reason why we think this is the case is because George Mason on June 4th, gives a big speech saying exactly this, <laughs> saying you've been, people have been real modest so far about what they have in mind for the presidency. And, and Morris and Mason, George Mason says, I very much want an independent executive, but I'm nervous about how powerful some others are going to try to make it. And let me give you the reasons why. And he, and he ends up being one of the three who also doesn't sign the constitution no, at the very end. Uh, you mentioned so Randolph didn't sign it. I wanted to just note along the way, Randolph, not long after, ends up pursuing his position in a way, right? He supports it in ratification and then becomes the first attorney general and the, what, the second secretary of state. So he winds up helping build the office once it's been established. His journey, that's fascinating. Now, one, one, one member of the convention who was not shy about giving a big speech early on is Alexander Hamilton, right? Who, who does, I, I can't remember where in the chronology it happens, but I think it happens early, right? That he gives his- June 18th. Great, so he gives his sort of stem winder on the nature of this government and the nature of, of the new presidency. 
which doesn't attract a whole lot of support to say the least. And and by the end of the process, as, as you note in in your report, Hamilton says, "Well, this new constitution is better than nothing." But That's but right. do you suppose? And this is, I mean, I hate to ask you to sort of speculate here, but could you speculate how much of an impact do you think Hamilton's faceplant, so to speak, in the in the the, the beginning of the the convention shapes the debates surrounding this executive power? Do you think the the, the supporters for a strong executive were more careful because of Hamilton, or does the chronology not not really bear that out? So, I mean, this is speculation, and some of this has to do with conversations that Bojo and I had with Professor Storing about about the speech. I think our tentative speculation is that precisely because Wilson was, you know, again being very careful about, you know, let's get some of the institutional issues, you know, settled before we sort of worry about what kind of powers that we may want into this new office. At a certain point, I think Hamilton believes that the conversation is too narrow. And so by laying down the speech he does, which is went on for hours, apparently, he has, in a sense, broadened out the, the conversation so that what could follow would be recommendations about power. I mean, in other words, Hamilton sort of put, put the issue at an extreme in such a way that other people wanting to add powers and authorities and strengthen the institution would look somewhat more moderate, even though, you know, in the context of the beginning of the deliberations, they would have been thought to have been, you know, too, too forward leaning when it comes to the executive. So the rhetorical intent of Hamilton might well have been to sort of break open the conversation in a way that allowed the rest of the convention to go forward and move, you know, even the presidency into a stronger position. And as Joe, you know, Joe has written and in, in our essay talks about, it is quite striking, other than, you know, sort of the being elected for life, how much of the authorities that Hamilton lays out for the, the executive actually wind up being in the presidency. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is interesting. If you, you know, you look back at what he proposed, take away the life term, and his presidency looks a lot like what we ended up with. And I, I would just add that, as you point out in the report, that, and it's, of course, well known among people who study the convention, Hamilton did not, he had a fully formed plan, and he gave this long speech, and he gave Madison a copy of the plan, but he never presented the plan to the convention, because he knew that it was, it just would be rejected as a plan. You know, yeah. central government's appointing the governors, senators will serve for life, presidents will serve for life. His president was impeachable, though. Some people sometimes yeah. forget that. And the list of powers is, you know, fairly similar to what we end up with. So in a way, you could look at it this way. You, in a way, you could say he's not presenting the plan that you're going to have to confront this plan and end up likely rejecting much of it. He's presenting arguments for a strong, independent executive. He's presenting arguments. And they're all there listening. And if you believe Governor Morris, he said it was the greatest speech he had ever heard. It was five or six <laughs> hours. Speech. It was a dazzling speech. And so, sure, that could have an effect on people, right? So he, he will leave soon thereafter and not come back till late August. But his arguments are still, right, they're still there. So this sort of cuts against, you know, what the Wilson strategy is to keep it small at the beginning and let it grow over time as people become more confident in the structure that they're building. Hamilton comes so this is now two and a half weeks later. Hamilton says, this is what we should have. And it's, it's out there for people to think about. Well, maybe we, at this point, we should just trace through how the conversation proceeds at the convention. And just as we start that off, could you just explain to the, the audience, what resources are you consulting as you draft, as you, you write this report, right? There's famously Madison's notes, but you rely on some other materials as well. Well, it's, you know, Farron did this edition back in 1937, I think it was, the definitive edition, and then he then there was some supplements. So Madison's notes are, I don't know what the fraction is, maybe it's 60 or 70% of all the notes we have. So every other delegate who took notes, we have their, Farron tracked those down and we have those notes. And then Farron collected letters and, you know, contemporaneous letters and things of that sort. So that's essentially the, the body material for this chapter. For other chapters, you know, other, you know, we have other sources. But as you noted earlier, some of, the, some of the quotations we have are not from Madison's notes as such, but from other, other delegates who did take their own notes. But no one, no one took nearly as extensive a set of notes as Madison. 
which is why often you see a, you'll see the publication Madison's Notes all by itself, right, of the Constitutional Convention without any of the other. But Farron pulled it all together for us. So I guess in broad strokes, then, we read these records from the convention. What do we find? What happens after the initial unveiling of these plans? Well, I mean, so the, the Virginia plan is, you know, Madison's, you know, sort of general outline for not just modifying the Articles of Confederation, but actually, you know, setting up a, a new federal government, new constitution. And I think as we already talked about, even though it was, there were certain elements that weren't filled in, the Virginia plan actually created a fairly, in the context of what the states and what the Articles of Confederation were about, created an independent executive with some independent will. You know, the salary was to be not negotiable while it was in office. And, and then they very quickly, you know, decided, and at least initially, that the national executive would be, you know, elected by a national legislature. But the key thing there was that they were going to give the president or the then executive, national executive, a seven-year term with no re-eligibility. And you think about that seven-year term, the longest term in the, in the state governments was three years. And so you're more than doubling the term of this, this new chief executive. And so, you know, they debate the elements of that. We've talked about, you know, Wilson's, you know, getting a single executive vote through and the sort of downplaying of the, the powers and authorities. But then the next major thing that happens is the Committee of Detail, which reports out more than details when they hand things over to this smaller committee. The only three powers that the president has is appointment, executing the laws, and some veto power. And what comes out of that is a lot more authorities, more powers and duties. And in effect, you have an executive at that point, which seems to be actually fairly strongly in control of the administrative organs of government. So it's a by that time, mid-July, late July, it's clear that even though there's still these other issues to be worked out, that the, the president, the chief executive, is going to have a dominant role in terms of setting the agenda for the country and its execution. And, and Joe, where do things go from there? So you get this report with the first draft constitution. So the Virginia plan was not a draft constitution. It was a series of resolutions. And then, of course, the, the New Jersey delegates, small state delegates present an alternative plan. The convention decides on the Virginia plan. It deliberates. As Gary indicated, there are only three powers vested in the executive at this time. Everything goes to the Committee of Detail. Out comes an actual draft constitution that they had printed and distributed. So this is referred to. So that comes out in early August. So you got another, you got a month or so to go before you, month and a half or so before you finish up, month and maybe five weeks. They finish on September 17th. So they work through all the provisions of the draft constitution, and they don't get to the presidency until late August because the presidency comes second in the, you know, after the legislative branch, after Congress. For the first time now, we have the names Congress, presidency, and Supreme Court. So now along the way, and we don't maybe have to go through all the details, obviously, but, but they do come to topics about Congress's powers that bear on the presidency, like Congress's power to make war, which they then change to declare war. And that happens in part of one day on August 17th. And, and we have a fairly lengthy discussion of that because of its importance to modern issues of war powers. It's been well-trodden ground, although there are still, I think, some insights to be had in, in trying to properly understand that relatively short debate. But then at the end of August, you, they start going through the presidential powers, right? They finally get to the, to the presidential provisions of the draft constitution. And although they address the powers over three days, they're addressing some other things as well. And it really is only about a day's worth of debate on these powers. And what is striking to us, and we try to make clear to the reader how striking it is, there's virtually no objection to this pretty vast expansion of presidential power from the three powers that went into the Committee of Detail to the long list that came out of the Committee of Detail. So for the first time, you've got commander-in-chief, you've got pardoning power, you've got recommending measures, you've got convening Congress on extraordinary occasions, you've got receiving ambassadors, you've got commissioning officers. Those come from that committee. They don't come initially from debate among the, you know, the members of the, the full body. 
And there's virtually no objection to this vast expansion. I mean, it's really quite striking. And then the next stage, so, but then they go back. During all of this, there's little debate about powers and an enormous amount of debate about the structure. Who's going to elect the president? How long is he going to serve? Is he going to be eligible for re-election? Is he going to be removable? And we cover all that. And, and there's you know, much more debate on that than on the powers, right? So at the end of August, or just going into early September, they have not resolved this, actually, what turns out to be a big dispute of whether the president should be elected by Congress or by the people. And although Wilson had said way back on June 2nd, I think it was, that the people should elect the president directly, that didn't seem to get anywhere. But as we point out in the chapter, these especially from insights by Gary in the writing of the chapter, the delegates never showed they were deeply committed to Congress electing the president. The commitment seemed to be more that, well, who else would elect the president? If the people really don't know enough, one of the delegates said it would be like giving the trial of colors to a blind man. I don't know that we covered it, but in the, in the debate, some of the delegates worried that the Society of Cincinnati, which was the Society of Military Officers, War Veterans of the Revolutionary War, that they would become a dominant organization that would choose presidential candidates, and they would essentially be picking our presidents, and that would be aristocratic and not, not, not a good thing for the country. So just before the... So this last committee, it's got different names. It was a committee of 11, one from each state. It's, and it's called the Committee on Postponed Matters or the Committee on Unfinished Business. And we like the term the Committee on Unfinished Business. Just before that committee is going to resolve final issues about the presidency and some other things, they vote to essentially overturn congressional election of the president by like a, like a nine to eight to three vote or something like that, an overwhelming vote. Nine. I think it was nine to one. Yeah. It was a nine to one. Okay, nine yeah. to one vote. So. They've been going back and forth on this over and over again. And, and James Wilson will say in a, a day or two later, this is the toughest thing we've had to decide in this the whole time we're here is how to elect the president and the, how long he should serve and whether he should be re-eligible and whether he should be removable from office. So the Committee on Unfinished Business then issues its report, and this is in early September, we're almost done now, and it then embraces the Electoral College, which had been mentioned before as something approximating popular election. You can't have direct popular election. And there were powerful objections to direct popular election, which we lay out, among which were that the franchise was much more broadly shared in the North than in the South. There were very low property qualifications. So some of the best estimates are that 80 to 90% of free white males in the North could vote, but much smaller percents in the South, even of the, of the free whites in the South. So if you had direct popular election, you can have a lot more voters in the North than the South, and that would be the disadvantage of the South. Also, what are you going to do about all those slaves in the South? Should they be counted towards a presidential? They're not going to vote, obviously. So you had the three-fifths clause that determined how they'll be counted for population in getting representation in the House. So any electoral college, they didn't invent it in the committee. It had been discussed, actually, Wilson Way back in June, after direct popular vote failed, he suggested electors because they had some experience with electors. In Maryland, they elected their Senate through electors. <laughs> so anyway, what comes out of that, well, the next to last committee on this is the system of the Electoral College. And also the Senate had been making treaties and the Senate had been appointing ambassadors and the members of the Supreme Court under the draft constitution. And that all gets changed. Now it's the president and Senate together make treaties and make appointments. So you're moving more power to the presidency. And then the final stage, I don't know if you want to pause here, but on the final stage is the Committee of Style, which does something that we lay out in great detail, which is also quite important in our view. And the Committee of Style is the last committee to deal with presidents, well, to deal with the whole Constitution, but it revises the structure of the Constitution. And then with minor changes, it's proposal goes through and becomes the Constitution. If I could just do two little footnotes. So I talked earlier about how after the Committee of Detailed, Madison thought it was necessary to up the oath to preserving, protecting, and, and defending the Constitution because the presidency all of a sudden was starting to show for the executive. The presidency by that time was going to be a, a significant office. 
after the Committee on Unfinished Business, and again, there's more powers moved into, into the presidency, they also add the provision of high crimes and misdemeanors to the impeachment provision. So it just wasn't the overt crimes of bribery or corruption, but it was also or treason. But it was also going to be this more nebulous standard, precisely because I think, again, as the power of the presidency grew, they needed to be able to, going back to our original theme, they needed to be able to sort of remove an officer from office who didn't follow through on his responsibilities or handled his responsibilities in a way that was consistent with the constitutional order. So you had this balancing even then between the Republican, Republican needs and the executive needs in that one office. Let me just add, you can see how how challenging it was for the delegates to find a way to make the president removable in those hopefully few extreme cases where this would have to be done, make him removable, but not in in so doing, make him dependent on or subservient to Congress. And that was a challenge. And they came up with a formula. You know, the Senate has to vote two thirds vote, which is a structural protection of the president. And then they spell out well, high crimes and misdemeanors, people debate what that means. But the alternative to that was maladministration, which one of the delegates had proposed. And Madison said, well, that'll just make the president, you know, the servant of the Senate if we make it maladministration. So they're continually addressing this issue of a potentially dangerous president. We need a powerful president for all the reasons we've talked about, but a powerful president is potentially dangerous. So he has to be accountable. And some of them thought, well, if we just have frequent elections, that's accountability enough. But even Governor Morris, who was adamantly opposed to having the president be impeachable, initially, after two days of debate, he publicly announced his change of mind. But they still had to find the right mechanism and the right words that would not go too far in making the president subservient to Congress. Yeah, let's focus a bit on the Electoral College as, as embodying these balances they're trying to strike. So if I, if I remember correctly, they won't have direct popular election of a president, you need some intermediary body, and who better but Congress, except you don't want the president to be subservient to Congress, you don't want Congress to be the president's boss, so to speak. So we need a body that's other than Congress. But if you have a fixed, some other fixed body, it's then going to be that body itself will be the subject of intrigue, either domestic or even in the debates, they worried about foreign influence on this other body. So you come, you end up getting an electoral college with, correct me if I'm wrong, in some ways it's sort of a stand-in for Congress, except it can't be just in the nation's capital. It has to be spread out throughout the country to avoid the problems of intrigue. And so you get this messy, unprecedented compromise of a body, but they're trying to get the best that they can out of, out of again, Republican government without suffering too many of the risks of, of danger that otherwise might attend to it all. Right, Gary? Well, I'd put it slightly different. I wouldn't say that the Electoral College was some sort of stand-in for modified version of you know, a congressional election. I think it was actually a modified version of popular election. And actually, during the convention, there was, wasn't as much discussion, at least from the notes, about foreign intrigue. It was more, there were two principal issues, one of which, well, there are three, one of which is popular election, even through electors how well would they choose? But that's one reason why they had this dual, you know, sort of you vote for somebody, you have two votes. But the other other reasons were, one was this pragmatic expense, how to, you know, initially they were thinking about electors coming to one particular spot and, and voting. And so they, you know, figured out, well, they can do it in the States and then report it. And the third one was the issue of how the South was the compromise that allowed slave population to be counted as part of the weight of the electoral vote that you would have. So it's not the cleanest solution. But on the other hand, I think the, the larger principle of making sure that this wasn't going to be something the president wasn't going to be beholden to the Congress, at least for the initial selection, was the driving force. I just wanted to say, I mean, part of the what you always see in the convention is this issue of how to select you know, it has an impact consistently. So if Congress is going to elect, then you want, you don't want re-eligibility. You want long terms, you know, if there's going to be something like an electoral college, then you can have shorter terms, although four years is still 
substantial when compared with the states and re-eligibility issues. So they're constantly, you know, when they have when they have these debates about, you know, which is going to be the, the way to select the president, that it constantly has an impact on these other elements in the office. I would add just one point on electoral college as a form of popular election rather than as a kind of substitute for congressional election. You've got to be you've got to remember who chose the electors. Now, the Constitution says as chosen as the state legislature see fit. And so there are really two models, right? There's two ways they did it right from the beginning. And, and, and they divided about half and half on the 13 states at the beginning. Well, I guess it was 11 states at the very beginning because North Carolina and Rhode Island had not yet ratified when the first presidential election took place. So the, in about half the states, roughly, the state legislators chose the electors. And in about the other half the states, the state legislatures allowed the people to choose the electors. Now, of course, the first two elections, there was no dispute who was going to win, right? <laughs> so Washington was obviously going to be won unanimously, right, both times. After that, there were some pretty big disputes very soon, right? It wasn't like one person by acclamation is going to be the president. So when those state legislators are choosing electors, if they're doing it directly, they're picking people who are sympathetic with their views as to who the president should be. And when the citizens in the other states are choosing electors, they know who those electors are inclined to vote for for president. So we have to, I think, be reminded of that, that this is not in each state. Take Virginia, which had, I think, 10 congressmen in the first Congress, and it had two, or 10 members of the House, two senators, so it had 12 electors. So these 12 electors were some you know, body of platonic guardians who are going to decide for the good of the citizens of Virginia and the country who the best president should be. No, these are people elected by either the citizens directly or by other individuals who are elected by the citizens. And they're broadly going to, you know, they're going to have opinions, which will be presumably known about who the president should be. And once you get the party division between the Federalists and the Republicans, this becomes quite clear. Electors are, you know, are known to be Republican electors or Federalist electors. So, and this is why I think it does make sense for Hamilton and Federalist 68 to describe the Electoral College as a as popular election. And the discussion in other Federalist numbers about the president runs for re-election, and you see this at the convention as well, if the people think he's done a good job, they'll re-elect him. If the people think, they don't say if the electors who don't yet exist, because the electors are chosen you know, for a specific purpose, then cease to exist. If the public thinks the president's done a good job, he'll be re-elected. So Federalists 71 and 72 are all based when they when Hamilton makes this extensive argument for the re-eligibility of the president in definite four-year terms, which of course we've now changed to two four-year terms, he's always discussing it as the public weighing in and deciding if the president merits re-election. And that wouldn't make sense if the Electoral College was not fundamentally a mode, a species of popular election. I know we're getting close to the end of our hour, but I, I do want to sort of make sure that we cover the very end of the convention with yeah. the Committee on Style, Joe and I in the essay really spent a considerable amount of time walking through that. I mean, the Committee's the Style is, this, as the name suggests, is supposed to, you know, sort of like tone up the, the Constitution and make sure that its provisions are, you know, sound in terms of law and Constitution. And the two big changes that we take note of are the first one has to do with changing the language of the vesting provision for Congress, which has an impact on how you interpret the vesting provision in, for the president and the executive power. So the difference between the vesting provision for Congress is that the change that they make is they say the powers herein granted, and then list the, in Article 1, Section 8, the remaining the powers of the Congress is to be given, whereas they leave the vesting provision for the executive alone so that the vesting provision of the executive power resides in this in a single office. So that's important for how you think about, of course, you know, whether the vesting provision for the for the president of the executive power is meant to be a substantial power or or just you know a preamble. And so we we go through that and we argue for the former. The second thing that the committee of style does, which we've written about in various different places, is it appears as though they, well, the 
coming out of the Committee of Detail, the powers and authorities for the president are kind of all lumped in, in, in one space. And they break those apart in Article 2, as we know, into four different sections. And our argument is, is that, that if you read the who's got the pen, which in this case is Governor Morris, and you know about the, the structure of the New York state constitution, an important element in how to read Article 2 appears, which is that the authorities that the president is, are given, is given is really structured along the difference between powers and duties which of course is reflected in the in section 1 of article 2 where where when the president is removed from office the powers and duties transfer to the vice president we think that's a really important element that's gotten lost in sort of constitutional discussions and constitutional history that this division between the president's powers that are listed mostly in article 2 section 2 versus the list of duties obligations that are found in Section 3 of Article 2. And indeed, the whole Article 2 is structured along a power-duty framework that you see in Article 1, I mean, Article 2, Section 1, and then carried out in Section 2 and 3. And then, of course, the impeachment provision, which is sort of how you might be impeached for abusing your powers in ways that undermine those duties that you've been given through your oath and through Section 3's obligations. So Committee of Style, you know, it has an impact on very much on how we read the president's uh, constitutional authorities. And so the Committee on Styles sounds like it's not that important, but in fact, it was, it was quite important. And the members, as you point out, they were chosen by ballot, members of this committee, and they were Hamilton, Gouverneur Morris, James Madison, Rufus King from Massachusetts, and William Samuel Johnson. From Connecticut. It's an amazing group, not just because it had so many of the greats from the convention, but so little representation or no representation from the core Southern states, right? And so south of Virginia. And so you get this committee that has such a decisive effect and really is, you know, so much of the core of the Federalist energy at that convention, other than, I suppose, Wilson. There's so much we could cover. We can't do justice to the whole report. And I really would encourage people to read it. You'll see discussions of the relationship between the president and the Senate, the president and the rest of, of government, Washington at the convention, of course. So please do read it. And maybe we'll return to these themes as you publish future chapters and in the book itself. But as we mentioned at the outset of the conversation, you two and Jeff Tulis, Texas, have been studying and writing on these issues for quite some time, dating back to your time as students of the late Herbert Storing. And as I mentioned, Joe edited a few years ago, a collection of Storing's writings, which is one of my absolute favorite books on my bookshelf. And, and as I tell Gary over and over again, anytime I think of something I think is creative and interesting and useful, I realize I'm just paraphrasing Herbert Storing. That book is titled Toward a More Perfect Union, The Writings of Herbert J. Storing. And I believe it's all at this point available, or maybe almost all available online. Yeah, Isn't it on? It's yeah. Yeah. Well, could you maybe say a few words about Professor Storing, your experience studying under him and his place in, in your own understanding of the Constitution? Gary, you talk about this all the time. So we'll let, we'll let Joe start. And then, Gary, you can have the final word. Well, he was a he was a phenomenal teacher. He died much too young. He was 49 years old in, in 1977 when he passed away. He had had several generations of students at Chicago. So we were in the final generation of students that he had had. He was totally devoted to his students and his teaching. You know, that isn't always the case at very high-end research institutions, but it was certainly the case with, with Storing. And he had had a great insight into the presidency, which was partly related to what he learned from Charles Thatch and then his own. Well, while, while we were there, he was finishing the complete edition of the Anti-Federalist. So he was completely, he was really steeped in all this material from the American founding. And he had a, a very deep understanding of the relationship of the presidency of the Constitution. And he structured his core syllabus, moving from the president as administrator to the president as a political check on Congress, to the president as leader in some sense, or sometimes anyway, of the whole political system, giving direction to the whole political system. And it was, I think we've said maybe in other places, but it was the begin when he issued, he put that introduction, fabulous introduction to this new edition of 
Charles Thatcher's book from 1923, and this issue came out in 1969. It was really the beginning of what you might call the strong constitutional view of the presidency. Because in the previous decades, scholars who studied the presidency from a legal perspective or a more political perspective seem to take one of two positions, that the president is relatively weak constitutionally and has politically gotten too strong and is breaking the bonds of the Constitution. So this is classic Edward Cohen, who had the major textbook on the presidency in the middle of the 20th century. And although Cohen wasn't a law, wasn't a law professor, but a political scientist, a lot, of, a lot of law professors had a similar point of view. The political scientists and the historians te- seem to take the view that they agree that the president is weak constitutionally, can be powerfully powerful politically, and that's a good thing. So they both agree that the constitutional presidency is pretty weak, but politically, the president can be pretty strong, and that either can be good or bad for the regime, depending on the president and depending on the time. Storing, that was not his argument. His argument was that the constitution, he sort of resurrected the Hamiltonian notion of the presidency. Not Maybe not single-handedly, but he was certainly the principal figure for doing that. I remember it as going away party. We had to decide what to give him as graduate students. Some of us followed him to Virginia, but most did not. And we gave him the 25 volumes of Hamilton's collected works that had recently come out. And it was just, he thought it was just the perfect, the perfect going away gift. So we've been writing in that tradition and trying to deepen and further that understanding of the strong constitutional presidency focusing not only on the powers, but in some ways in this chapter, even more on the structure and the relationship of those two. By the way, if folks want to look up this volume by Thatch that we've been referring to, it's titled The Creation of the Presidency, 1775 to 1789, A Study in Constitutional History. The edition I have was republished by the Liberty Fund, and so it has both Storing's introduction and also a forward by Forrest MacDonald. Gary, any further thoughts to add on Professor Storing? Yeah, just in the context of this particular essay on the convention, one of the most striking things about Professor Storing was, you know, some of these courses that he had taught, he had taught numerous times. But if you happen to sort of, you know, go by his office, let's say an hour or two before the course would begin, you would see Storing pouring over the same materials that he probably had poured over, you know, numerous times, you know, by the scores. But he always had the sense that there was something more to be learned by, you know, continuing to look and think about what the founders were saying, writing, arguing. And I think the truth is that when Joe and I, you know, began this effort uh, to, you know, go through the convention in, in the light of thinking about the presidency, I think we both, you know, over time have learned, you know, Storing's, the value of Storing's method, which is there is always more to be learned. And so even though we're really quite happy with the way this essay turned out. I, I suggest to others that they continue to read the convention and tell us, you know, how we can make our argument better or critique it. Well, for anybody who would like to learn more about storing, of course, there's the volume that Joe edited that I've referred to a couple of times. In addition to that, there's an entire website at contemporaryfinkers.org focused on storing. And there you can find an interview that Gary did with Bill Crystal a few years ago on storing. And I can't encourage our our listeners enough to look this up. Maybe we'll return for further discussions on this someday. But in the meantime, again, the report, which you can find online on AEI's website and in our show notes, is titled Crafting a Republican Executive, the Presidency and the Constitutional Convention by our guests today, Joseph Bissett and Gary Schmidt. You mentioned that this is part of a, a book project, Gary? Yeah, I think I'll let Joe. (laughs) Joe? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so this is one chapter, what will be an eight or nine chapter book. There'll be an introduction. There'll be two chapters on the state governors, one focusing on the constitutions, one focusing on the state governors in action, exercising executive power in action during this critical period. The convention debate, there'll be a chapter on the ratification debate. We're now finishing the chapter on these four key precedents from the Washington administration. And then we're going to do something that no one else, I believe, has ever done. We're going to have a whole chapter looking at the split between Hamilton and Madison on the presidency on executive power, which is very clear in the debate over Washington's, over the constitutional justification of Washington's proclamation of neutrality in 1793. 
but also very clear in the split between the Federalists and the Republican parties, which is a split in part about executive power, of course. And then we'll have a chapter where we'll say something about the Adams administration, the Jefferson administration, and probably the Madison administration. Madison is, he's the father of the constitution. He's not the father of the presidency. You wouldn't read the convention debates and call him that, but you would, people have called him for a long time, the father of the constitution. And he was a fabulous legislator and statesman and, and constitutional craftsman, but he's not usually viewed as having been a great president, partly because of the early lack of success failures in the War of 1812, which ended up in a kind of stalemate and okay, but maybe not so much because of Madison's great leadership. That might be the place, besides a concluding chapter, where we'll, in terms of the historical coverage, where we'll end the book. Well, that sounds great. I'll clear a space on my bookshelf to fill in with that book. So hurry up and write it for us. Joe, thanks for joining us today. Right, welcome. And Gary, thanks as always for, for joining us here on the podcast. Thanks for having us. And as always, thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us for the next episode of Unprecedential.